I just love that final scene from the movie The Lord of the Rings, uh, the end of the trilogy, The Return of the King, points us to heaven. And I think it's J.R. Tolkien's birth in there to what heaven is going to be like. And I love that analogy of, of, of setting sail. I love that line Bilbo Baggins has in the, in the movie there when he says, I'm quite ready now for a new adventure. And that's really what it's going to be like for us is we go from this home, which really isn't our home, to really our real home, and that's our eternal home. And it's just going to be a new adventure. And I love that analogy that just getting on the ship and going for that new adventure to our eternal home. And that's what we're going to talk about today is the certainty of eternity. And we'll talk about heaven today. For those of you guys that don't know me, my name is Danny Evans. I'm one of the pastors here at Windsor Community Church. And it's really my privilege to come and talk to you guys today and open God's word and pray that God would speak in you and through you. Uh, this week's been a little rough for me. I, like probably some of you I know, got this uh, flu bug, this stomach flu thing, came down with it on Wednesday, and really haven't eaten a darn thing for about four days now. So I'm a little weak, a little shaky, but uh, where I'm weak, God is strong. And so I just trust in Him that speak in and through me today, and, and that you guys will just really hear from God and from His Word. We took a little break for Thanksgiving, and now we're going to get back into 2 Corinthians. And as by way of review, 2 Corinthians is written by Paul, and it's written to the church in Corinth. And Corinth was a very cosmopolitan city, a very worldly city. And Paul came into this very worldly city, and he planted a church. And he was there about 18 months, and then he departed. And after his departure, some false apostles, false teachers really came into the church and they started discounting Paul and his credibility and that he really wasn't an apostle. Paul heard about this, so he came back and he visited them. It's known as the painful visit. And he talked to them and he confronted these false apostles. And to his chagrin, the body didn't come around him and they didn't support him. And so... He left and it hit probably one of the lowest points in Paul's ministry as he left and he felt disowned by this church in Corinth. And so he wrote him a letter back. It's called the severe letter and we don't have that letter. Thank goodness, probably. We don't have it, but he wrote him a severe letter and he waited after this letter to see what the response would be and rated for some time. And finally, he heard word back that they had repented from their allegiance to these false apostles and that now, after that time, he's written this next letter called the Second Letter to the Church in Corinth. And that's what we have been going through these last several months. We've gone through four chapters now of Second Corinthians. And the question is, what has God been teaching you? In a couple of minutes, we're going to have a time where I'm just going to pass the mic, and that's going to be the rest of our time. <laughs> Sound good? No? Okay. <laughs> Well, if you're like most of us, though, when I say, what's God been teaching you in 2 Corinthians? You've had two weeks since 2 Corinthians. Maybe you're gone even that week. You've had three or four. You've been in and out for a while. And so maybe a little review would help. And I know it helped for me. I went back through and looked at some of the messages and what we've been learning in 2 Corinthians. So I'm going to kind of quickly go through that. The main theme is Paul's defense of his apostleship and started right out in chapter 1. God started out by talking about the God of all comfort. And really, that is a main theme through the first part of 2 Corinthians, is that God is a God of comfort. And that though Paul and all his companions went through many trials and difficulties, God was there and he comforted them through all those trials and difficulties. That has really kind of been the theme, is is, is having a triumphs during our trials and persevering during our persecution. And then chapter 1 went in and talked about Paul's change in plans and how he had a clear conscience, though he was attacked by these false apostles. Chapter 2 talked about the joy of obedience and the purpose of forgiveness, and then moved into the the theology of the new covenant, and that really took us in into all of chapter 3. And that new covenant is about Jesus, that Jesus was the Messiah as foretold and prophesied in the Old Testament. 
and that this Messiah, Jesus, came and he fulfilled the Old Testament law, the Old Covenant law, by becoming the once and for all sacrifice for all our sins. See, in the Old Testament, we had to have a sacrifice every time the law was broken, but Jesus became that once and for all sacrifice for our sin. And then chapter 3, I love the last verse in chapter 3. It says this, verse 18, And we who with unveiled faces all reflect the Lord's glory are being transformed into his likeness with ever-increasing glory, which comes from the Lord who is his spirit, transformed into his likeness. What a great thing. The same theme is in Romans chapter 8 where it says we are being conformed into the image of his son and the image of Jesus. And I love going to uh, the missionary church conference once a year. We get to go to this um, conference in California. And I love being there because they usually get some of the more mature saints to speak at these times. And it's just great to see these older saints, more mature saints that are more conformed into the image of Christ than many of us younger pastors are. Uh, Chapter 4 then continued on this theme from verse 18 in chapter 3 of being transformed into the likeness of Christ in ever-increasing glory. And it talked about how the gospel was veiled to the non-believer, but how it's unveiled to us as believers, and that we have a treasure, right? We have a treasure in jars of clay. And this jars of clay referred to really our earthly dwelling or our body. And so we're going to talk about that some more today, our earthly dwelling or our body and what that's like. And this treasure really is, is more valuable than any, anything in the world, right? This treasure is the light of the world. It's the gospel. It's Jesus. It's, it's the God-man, the Son of God who came to this earth as a baby in a manger. And that's what we celebrate this Christmas, this Advent season, is Him, God, coming down to earth and becoming a man. Chapter 3, verse 18, also is closely related to chapter 4, verse 16. And both have to do with this spiritual renewal, if you will, that happens. Chapter 3, verse 18, discusses the transforming into the image of Christ with ever-increasing glory. And chapter 4, verse 16, discusses how our inward body is being renewed day by day. Now, this does not take place passively. This renewing, this spiritual renewal cannot take place while we lay in bed at night just by osmosis. And it can't take place just by reading the Bible because that would just fill us with knowledge and puff us up. And it can't take place just by praying or meditating or going away, even though that's very valuable to pray and to meditate and to have time alone with the Lord. And it can't take place by just serving, but it takes place with all these kind of components working together. That as we spend time with the Lord in prayer and His Word, that He convicts and changes us. And that's an outpouring in our lives as we serve the body of Christ and we love and serve others around us. And so that's what the spiritual renewal is talking about, that renewing day by day is that closer, intimate relationship with God on a one-on-one basis and then pouring out into others. There's a quote that Sue had shared with me about She's in a women's study called Breaking Free, and she shared a quote with me that kind of struck me this week that Beth Moore had said. And she said, if you want to find bitter, angry people, just look at people that are serving too much in the church. And I think what that really is mean is people that are serving out of obligation and not want to. And Dan talked about this two or three weeks ago about how we want to be people that serve because we want to, not because we have to. Not serving out of obligation, but out of desire to give back to what God so graciously gave to us. And so by God's grace, I believe we're a church body that is those people that are getting to serve in areas of their giftedness, areas they want to. And so it was a heart check for Sue and I to really look at those. Where are we serving because we feel we have to? And where can we serve in places where we want to? And so I just consider that for you to think about those things as Serving in areas where you really, really want to, where you really have a desire to serve and, and give back to what God so graciously gave to you. And I know many Christians who have become angry and bitter 
when they go through difficulties and, and trials that come into their lives. And, and instead of, as this verse says in chapter 3, of instead of moving from glory to glory or achieving that ever-increasing glory, they try to do things on their own strength. And, and they sometimes they just wallow in their own self-pity and they kind of try to blame others or blame God. And so they're not really achieving this ever-increasing glory because they're not depending on God through these trials. We need to not complain during trials. We need to persevere and seek God and draw near to the Savior who suffered all of these things and more. And to understand what Christ said and what Paul said in, in Philippians when he said to share in the sufferings of Christ, to walk in those valleys. Now today we're going to look first at the last uh, three verses in chapter 4 because I think they really help us springboard into chapter 5. So if you would, turn with me in your Bibles to 2 Corinthians chapter 4. And, and we're going to start by reading in verses uh, 16 through 18. So I'll read it out loud and you can and look along silently. Verse 16 says, Therefore we do not lose heart. Though outwardly we are wasting away, yet inwardly we are being renewed day by day. For our light and momentary troubles are achieving for us an eternal glory that far outweighs them all. So we fix our eyes not on what is seen, but on what is unseen. For what is seen is temporary, but what is unseen is eternal. Let's pray. Father God, Lord, I thank you for your word and that it is so powerful. And thank you how much... Uh, it transforms us and how much it's transformed me, these words, over the last couple of weeks as I've had the opportunity to meditate and think upon these things and dwell upon these things. Lord, there's, these are some tough verses to think about how we are to live for that which is unseen. I mean, Lord, help us to understand the reality of the unseen, the reality of the eternal. That is a hard thing to grasp in, in our temporal world where everything we deal with on a daily basis is things we see. So Lord, help me to communicate that clearly today of, of something that is unseen because I don't think I fully have a grasp myself. So I pray that you would be with us. Your spirit is really the only thing that can help us understand and, and see the unseen. It's uh, the only thing that can help us to grasp what's eternal and grasp the things that are above and beyond our comprehension. So, Lord, I thank you for your spirit and pray that it would dwell richly within us, that we could wipe away all the hindrances from our heart and our, and our lives, the things that are distractions that are taking us away from fixing our eyes on heaven, fixing our eyes on what are seen or what are unseen, Lord. So, Lord, I pray that you'd wipe those distractions away right now and speak into our hearts. pray these things in your precious name. Amen. So today I broke these passage down into really three sections. And the first section is these first three verses in chapter 4, the last three verses in chapter 4. The topic and the point of these three verses really is that temporal, the things that we see on a daily basis versus the eternal or that which we don't see, and how we need to put our hope and trust in those things which we don't see. And then next I'm going to move in, the next point to talk about will be in chapter 5 and talk about the certainty of eternity. And that's really the focus of this whole message is the certainty of eternity. And then we'll finish off with just verses 4 and 5 and talk about how we are created for a purpose. Dean talked about in chapter 4 how Paul and his companions did not lose heart. In fact, chapter 4, verse 1, talks about and says, we do not lose heart. And that's uh, amazing to think about, though the trials that they went through, they continued to not lose heart. You know, it's hard to think in our day and age when people go through trials, you see it so much. I see it in my workplace and places where go through trials where they complain about it, where they blame others where they try to bring others down. And when, if it's too bad, man, they go sue somebody, right? If it's a bad enough trial and it's hard, let's, let's hurt and offend somebody else. And that's the way our world deals with trials and difficulties, is inflict the pain on somebody else. But Paul says, though they went through those things, they did not 
lose heart. And so we'll see today in the verses that how they were able not to lose heart during those difficult times. Now, verse 16 now talks about wasting away or decaying. And, and to a child or a teenager, that's a foreign concept, right? I mean, I think when you, I was a teenager, man, I was invincible. You know, you could do anything, jump off a building somehow, you would bounce out of that or something. But to most of us in the room, that's not the case. I think we, we understand what wasting away means. We understand what decaying means, right? Every time we get out of bed in the morning, we understand it. Every time we go for a run or we exercise, we understand it. For me, weightlifting, I start aching and know how my body's decaying. And this week, for me, having the flu, good night. I'm talking about groaning and aching. I really sympathize with those verses, having the flu this week. And there's a term in physics, and it's called entropy. And that's really what it is, right? You guys know what entropy is? Entropy is really that gradual decline, a gradual decline towards disorder. And that's really what this world is in. This world is in a gradual decline towards disorder. And that's what our body is. It's wasting away. It's decaying. Though I love what this verse says. This verse says, though outwardly, outwardly we are wasting away, yet inwardly something different is happening, right? Inwardly, we're being renewed day by day. Renewed. And that should just give us such great hope that inwardly something we can't even see is happening that's renewing us day by day. So I think there's a direct proportional relationship, really, between what's going on outside and what's happening on the inside. So you can take great heart in every time you see all those wrinkles or gray hair or maybe lost hair or every time your step gets a little slower, you can think, well, outwardly it's getting worse, but inwardly it's looking good. So take great hope in that. And I love being around the folks that are the more mature saints and, and seeing that inward renewal and that sense of peace and the sovereignty of God that's happening in their lives. And I think a great example of this is the Coopers. Every time I get to be around the Coopers and and I think of how, though you look at Jan now and, and how her body is just decaying outwardly, yet inside there's just something supernatural we don't get to see. That inward renewal as God prepares her to go home. She's becoming stronger and stronger inwardly. And I think about a, some of the words, the final words that D.L. Moody have. I think he, he put it best when he said that Earth recedes, yet heaven opens before me. And his son was with him on his deathbed, and, and his son said, thought he was delirious. He said, well, Dad, I, I think you're dreaming. But D.L. Moody went on to say, no, no, this is no dream. It's beautiful. It's like a trance. If this is death, it is sweet. There is no valley here. God is calling me. And I must go. Such a sweet picture of what it's like. Just like Bilbo Baggins, he saw the the wind blow against his face and he knew it was time to go. To go to that next great adventure. Let's look at verse 17. Verse 17 says, For our light and, and momentary troubles are achieving for us an eternal glory that far outweighs them all. And this verse really affirms that temporal that really, that comparison be, between the temporal and the eternal we're talking about. And it contrasts the afflictions we're going through in this life as momentary and light compared to the eternal weight of glory. I mean, there are some verses in the Bible you just really got to, you just got to ponder and you got to think, and this definitely is one of them. I mean, to, to call our troubles on this earth light and momentary. That's very hard for us in this world to grasp. It's an amazing, really, to think of that Paul and all his companions called their trials light and momentary. As Dean talked about a couple weeks ago, and he talked and he went through all those troubles that Paul and his companions went through, and we're going to look at it in chapter 6, and we're going to look at it in chapter 11. And they were rough. I mean, stonings, beatings, whippings, if anyone today would have gone through one of those things, 
oh my gosh. I mean, I know if it was for me, if I went through a beating, I, everyone would know about it. Be on the front page of the papers, and I'd be going ballistic and, oh, this is horrific. The worst thing that ever happened in my life. And it'd be on all the talk shows and newspapers and everything, right? I mean, just one of these things would be blown out a huge proportion, and we would take it to the other extreme. And for Paul, he called them light. Light and momentary. That's just amazing. And why could he call that? Why could he call them light and momentary? Well, because he saw that in comparison to the eternal weight of glory that was to come. See, Paul believed that the decaying of our body, though, was not meaningless. That the trials we go through are really for our good and not for our harm. You know, I always get frustrated biking in Colorado. For any of your bikers, you'll be able to sympathize with me that when you bike in Colorado, it doesn't feel like there's always a headwind. I don't know why that is. You go out and you go, okay, well, there is a headwind, so I'm going to cut my losses today, and while I feel energetic and have some energy, I'm going to bike out into that headwind because I know when I turn around, whoo, tailwind, baby, all the way back, I'll just be barely pedaling, do, 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 35 miles an hour, I won't even have to try, right? If you bike in Colorado, in northern Colorado, you know that is never the case. It is never a tailwind. Very rarely have I enjoyed that. It's usually you go out, and just before you turn around, what happens? The wind changes, and you're going back in a headwind. And so I usually, and everyone with me, start complaining about, oh my gosh, a headwind. Can you believe the wind changes the headwind? Oh, geez. Well, if we look at these verses, I, I shouldn't complain about it. I should be going, oh, thank you, God, for this change in wind and that I'm always in the headwind because it's making me a stronger biker. Thank you, God. No, we never do that. We never do that. We have to complain about it. That's hard to do. It's hard not to complain. It's hard not to when we're going through trials, too. The same is true when we're going through trials. When we go through trials, we rarely ever praise God for these trials. I was thinking about this week. Thank you, God, for the flu. I usually rarely say that. I tried to utter it in my weakness, but that's what we need to do. We need to thank God for these trials and these difficulties in our life and the outward decay that's happening. Now, yet these verses say that afflictions really are proportionally related to our future glory, right? So that the more trials we go through, the more difficult our life is. And the more we use God to help us, really, that's the key, is life is going to be difficult. There's going to be trials. And we have a choice whether to choose God and to use Him to get us through those trials or to try to do things on our own. But the more we use God to help us through these trials and these afflictions that we go through, the future glory the eternal glory that will far outweigh these trials will happen. Uh, Brendan Manning, who wrote the Ragamuffin Gospel, has a great quote in his book, um, Ruthless Trust. He said this, I think it might be on the screen, anyone God uses significantly is always first deeply wounded. Anyone God uses significantly is always first deeply wounded. We are each and every one of us insignificant people who God has called and graced to use in a significant way. On the last day, Jesus will look us over, not for medals, diplomas, or honors, but for scars. I contemplated these verses in this quote, and really God revealed to me that that those people that are beautiful on the outside are famous by this world's standards that have the medals and diplomas and honors are somewhat of a distraction to the gospel. And an example of this to me was when I took my young son a couple of years ago to Fort Collins to one of those strongman shows. Have you guys seen those strongman shows? They go through the schools and it's a great thing. Uh, but they go through the schools and all these big guys that used to be weightlifters or football players or whatever it may be, they come out and they bend bars and they karate chop boards and break bricks. and uh, uh, It's a really manly show. It's really great to take 
your son too, some manly things like that. And at the end of the, the time, uh, one of the guys gets up and he, and he shares the gospel and he does an altar call. And he calls these kids to know Jesus. And, and all tons of kids go up there. Almost every young kid goes up there. Why? Because they want to be a big, strong guy, right? They want to be just like this guy. And so I really wondered about it for my son and some of his kids' point of view is, is are they really going up there to know the suffering servant? Do they really understand the cost of following Christ? Or do they just really want to be a strong man that just so happens to know Jesus? And once again, verse 18 emphasizes this point we're talking about, that, that we are to put our hope and trust in that which is unseen and not which is seen. Let's look at verse 18. Verse 18 says, So we fix our eyes not on what is seen, but what is unseen. For what is seen is temporary, but what is unseen is eternal. I mean, for me, that is so hard. Um, I thought about that on our extended 26-hour drive to and from Arizona last week as I looked out around me and thought about everything in my life that I enjoy is temporal. You know, I, I can't get out of bed in the morning unless I have my temporal good cup of coffee. I don't know how many of you guys can empathize with me on that. But I live for temporal things like good cup of coffee, like going to a nice restaurant, having a good meal, going on vacations to the beach or the mountains or things like that. I, 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 it just amazes me how much of my life is absorbed in the temporal. And on the other end of the stick, you're so absorbed by your own illness or the illnesses of your family or what's going on in your lives and you just focus so much on the temporal things in our lives and we look at those and are, are just over-absorbed by those things. And I think how little of my time I spend thinking about heaven and what's to come. So now, these things, I got some questions. These things that we see are temporal. How do we long for things that we don't see? How do we long for these things that are eternal? Hebrews chapter 11 says, Now faith is being sure of what we hope for and certain of what we don't see. How can we be certain or how do we have faith in that? which we do not see. I mean, that's the quintessential question, right? That is the question every religion is focused around. That which we can't see. Faith in what we can't see. The unseen. When I was 10 years old, I I got in a fight with my sister like I often did, and we were in the back of our station wagon, and we're going at it as usual. I was always pestering her and always annoying her, like a big brother does, right? So we were going at it once again. And, and this one, though, became a fatal time because we were going at it, and I wasn't wearing my glasses. And she took a pointed brush, and out of frustration, she threw it at me and struck me in my left eye. Though I totally deserved it. I was pestering her and bothering her. That blow was a fatal blow to me because I basically lost the sight in my left eye. And to this day, I now can only see fuzzy images because of numerous surgeries later out of my left eye. And thanks God to my right eye, or I would probably be legally blind. But sometimes I think that those people that are blind really have an advantage to us that can see in their faith, in their walk of faith, in their knowing of what is eternal because they dwell 24-7 in the unseen. And I can imagine that they would captivate their mind much more frequently on what is eternal and what is heavenly. Now, they do live in this temporal world. But I think so many of our sins are sins of sight. I think of lust and greed and covetousness. They're sins of sight and it's probably why Jesus said, if your eye causes you to sin, gouge it out. I think the blind can dwell in the unseen because they have a closer understanding of, of that which is eternal. Now Paul transitions then 
from verse 18 where he compares and contrasts the temporal with the eternal to our eternal heavenly dwelling place in chapter 5. Let's look at chapter 5 now. Chapter 5, uh, he starts off. Let's look at verse the first three verses in chapter 5. He starts off by saying, Now we know that if the earthly tent we live in is destroyed, we have a building from God, an eternal house in heaven. Not built by hands. Meanwhile, we groan, longing to be clothed with our heavenly dwelling. Because when we are clothed, we will not be found naked. Notice how Paul starts this chapter off by saying, For we know. For we know. I think this really emphasizes the certainty of eternity. And that's really my next point, is the certainty of eternity. And I'm just amazed by God. I love that song the worship team said, Lord, I'm amazed by you. And one way I was amazed by him is in how on our preaching rotation, I usually go first and then Chris goes next and then Dan and then Dean bats cleanup for us. And we're in this rotation and whatever chapter you hit, you just hit. And so God blessed me by being able last Easter to talk about heaven. And then again, just by coincidence, I got to talk on 1 Corinthians chapter 15, which is all about heaven. And then just by coincidence again, we're in chapter 5, which still happens to be about heaven. (laughs) So I'm amazed by God, how he keeps putting that topic out in front of me. And I thank him for that because it's given me a greater appreciation for heaven. And really that's the point here of the whole message is that we are to have a certainty of eternity. And in chapter 5, we see that Paul, once again, he's combating these uh, false apostles who are teaching that only Christ was resurrected and only Christ had a resurrected body because he's fighting this philosophy of the day. He's still combating this philosophy of the day that the Greeks had, and it's called dualism, that when they, well, really the dualism was that everything material, right, was evil. And their body, which was material, was evil. So that when they go to heaven and to the divine, there will be no material, that we will just be disembodied spirits. And so Paul is continuing to battle that thinking that's going on and that these false apostles are infesting the church with. And he's battling them saying, no, that's not the case. That's not the case that when we go to heaven, we will have an eternal dwelling, a resurrected body that will be far different. That heaven really is a real place with real bodies. See, Paul and his companions knew that this world and everything in it was going to burn. Like he said, it's temporary, and that included our bodies. Paul was a tent maker, and we see here in these verses that he uses tents as an analogy of of our earthly body. He uses a tent as an example of our earthly body. Just like in chapter 4, he used that earthen vessel, the jar of clay, as an analogy of our earthly body. Now, our earthly body as a tent, we know that tents are temporary, right? That when we have a tent up, it's usually because we are going traveling to and from somewhere or we're going camping typically. And if you're like me, when you go camping and you're sleeping out in the woods and the boonies, you can't wait to take that tent down and get back in your own bed, right? Is there anyone with me on that? I can't. I mean, sheesh. I can only take so many days in a tent and I got to get back to my own bed. So our earthly body, though, as we talked about before, is wearing down. And thanks be to God, it's temporary. Yet our heavenly body, in this analogy, is more like a house. And I must be childish or simplistic, because my example here, first thing popped in mind, is the three little pigs. I don't know. So just bear with me on this. But the three little pigs, you guys all know the story of the three little pigs, right? The The first house, or I'll call it the tent, is made out of straw. And we know this tent doesn't last very long because the big bad wolf comes and does what? He he blows it down right right away. And so that's what this tent in our body is really like, is that house of straw. And so for some of us that work out a little bit more, maybe like Meredith or John Cuppinger, and their bodies are a little bit nicer and buffer, they probably got more of the house of sticks, right? This is a little more enduring house of sticks. 
And what the, the wolf has to work a little bit harder to blow that one down. But hey, it's still temporary and it's gone. But our heavenly dwelling more is like the house of what? Of stone or bricks, right? That's what our heavenly dwelling is like. And huff and puff and the wolf, a.k.a. Satan, cannot blow it down. And it's there forever. It's permanent. That's what our heavenly dwelling is like. So thanks for bearing with me with my childish illustration of our earthly house. Let's look on to verses 2 and 3. We see in verse 2 and 3 that Paul really has a longing for heaven and his desire to be rid of this tent of a body. Verse 2 says, We groan, longing to be clothed with our heavenly dwelling. We groan. And in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 54 says, When the perishable has been clothed with the imperishable and the mortal with immortality. So can't we relate to these verses, right? This groaning or this longing. I know as believers, we long to be in heaven. We long to be rid of these sin-ridden carcasses. They just drag us down. They inhibit our relationship with God. And it's sad to see, though, that this world has the opposite view of the body, right? This world idolizes the body. All you have to do is go to the supermarket and look at all the magazines. What's on the front of every magazine? Some body. Some airbrushed, perfect body. Because we idolize it. We think it's what's great in this world is the body. But as Christians, we need to know that that is temporary. It's something we are not to put anything of extreme value in. Not to put a value in how much we weigh or how much we can bench for us. <laughs> or what we can do in our bodies. Now, not to say that our bodies are important. I mean, God's word does say our body is a temple and we are to take care of it. But we are never to idolize it. It's something that is temporary. Something that is going away. Verse 3 goes on to say, because when we are clothed, we will not be found naked. And my dad usually says, we'll not be found naked. I don't know if he's from the, he's not from the South, but he said naked. So this last phrase, though, not be found naked, is really, again, based back on that Greek philosophy again, that uh, Paul is trying to combat that philosophy that the Greeks thought that we would be separated from the body. We'd be this disembodied spirit just floating around. Paul says, no, that's not even close to the case. We're not going to be naked. We're going to be clothed. And our body groans to be clothed. It wants, the spirit wants to have a body connected to it. But it wants to have a new body. It wants to have a resurrected body, one that's glorified, one that can have no sin nature in it, one that can be intimately close to God. As I've talked about before, Sue and I are in a, in a book club and we just finished um, a book called Eat, Pray, Love and you may have seen it on the book stands and places. And basically this is a story of a spiritual journey that this lady, the author, goes on to find herself after a nasty divorce. And she goes basically to three countries. She goes to Italy to eat she goes to India to pray, and she goes to um, Indonesia to find love. And in India, she visits a guru who teaches her how to pray and how to meditate on certain mantras for hours. And for the Hindu guru, there really is no heaven, that you're to be reincarnated. And really, for the Hindu, that you can actually achieve heaven on earth if you achieve certain states in meditation. And then she goes on to Indonesia where she meets a medicine man and this medicine man tells her really that heaven is, is just basically like a, a building, a high-rise building and, and that heaven and hell are just basically on different floors and you get to choose which floor you want to go to. You can go up to heaven or you can go down to hell. Many uh, religions really have different views of the afterlife, don't they? So how can we be certain that Christianity is right, and all these other religions are wrong. Well, we'll see that in verses 4 and 5. See in these verses that we are all created, all of us that know God are created for a purpose. Actually, every single one of us, every single person is created for a purpose. 
Let's look at verses 4 and 5. For while we are in this tent, we groan, we are burdened, because we do not wish to be unclothed, but to be clothed with our heavenly dwelling, so that what is mortal may be swallowed up in life. Now it is God who has made us for this very purpose and has given us the Spirit as a deposit, guaranteeing what is to come. I think everyone in the world is craving for purpose in their lives. They want to find meaning in their lives. Um, This Thanksgiving, as I said, I went to Arizona to spend time with my dad and my stepmother and extended family. And uh, at Thanksgiving dinner, we all got to talk about our careers. And my stepsisters are very successful in their careers. And one of my stepsisters, she talked about how her whole group in in her company got laid off, but they kept her on. And they kept her on at a cost, though. She ended up working 12 and sometimes 16-hour days and just to, just to get purpose and find meaning in her life. And, and she talked about really the cost that it took that she you know, hadn't had much free time. She hadn't been able to spend much time with her husband and hadn't been able to take care of herself the way she wanted to. And so you ask it, what cost? What cost? just to find value and purpose in her life, just so her her boss would say, you are important to us. You are valuable to us. Now, she's not a unique case, though. I I watched 60 Minutes, I don't know, about a month ago, and it was all about people in our society, American society, who work endless hours, really just to find purpose and meaning in their lives. I think that deep within us, God has created it a hole or a vacuum and we all yearn to have purpose and meaning and for someone to say you're important your life has meaning and purpose in it yet for believers we know that's not the case we don't have to go out and find that in the world for as believers we have a purpose right and that's to glorify God and on earth that's that's a hard thing to do because we always battle our flesh the sinful nature of our flesh always battles that try and attempt to glorify God. But in heaven, we'll finally achieve that. We'll achieve that combination because we will have a glorified body, the one that we are created for, the one this talks about. Because we are groaning, we are burdened in this earth, yet we want to be clothed with our heavenly body. And that's what we are created for. We were made by God and for God. We were not created to indulge in in our own pleasures of life and to really just seek self-fulfillment like this author of this book did. She went on a trip just to find herself. We were created by God and for God for a purpose, and that is heaven. Our time on this earth is just a preparation for heaven. So all that we do, everything that we're about as believers on this earth should be pointed towards heaven. When we are with people that don't know Christ, our our focus should be on heaven and how to get things and transition from things that are temporal to things that are eternal. And our time together as believers, we should not be dwelling on the problems of this world, but we should use heaven as our daily encouragement as we go on this walk. And though we struggle and have trials on this earth, God is preparing us for heaven. Verse 4 starts out by talking about our desire to be clothed and refers to us as groaning. And chapter 8 of Romans talks about this as well. It says, We who have the first fruits of the Spirit groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for our adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. And I think this groaning really is not a groaning as much to get rid of this body as it is a groaning or a longing or a desire to have our resurrected bodies. Verse 5 says, Now it is God who has made us for this very purpose. So what is this very purpose? The end of verse 4 says it. It's to be clothed with our heavenly dwelling. To be clothed with our heavenly dwelling, our resurrected body. See, when God created us in the garden, it was really to have an intimate relationship with Him. It was to have that closeness that wasn't hindered by sin. 
But the problem is, by our own free will, we chose to disobey God. We chose to sin and go our own way. Thank God he loved us so much that he, he came back, that God came to this earth as a son. He came as a baby in a manger. But he rose and became a man. And he lived a perfect life. And he went and died a terrible death. But then he conquered sin and death. And he rose again. He rose again so that we could be brought back to our original purpose and our original design. See, God's a God, I think, of second chances because Jesus, he gave us a chance once again to have an intimate relationship with him and to be able to fulfill God's original intent in the garden for us, which is to be with us, to be intimate. And that will happen in heaven when we have our glorified body and we'll be connected together. We'll be able to worship God without any hindrances. Verse 4 concludes with, so that what is mortal may be swallowed up by life. The word life here really means that eternal life. And it's what Jesus used repeatedly. In the Gospel of John, he said, I am the bread of life. I am the resurrection and the life. I am the way, the truth, and the life. See, this life here that Jesus is referring to is eternal life. It's an abundant fulfilling life. And for those of you who don't know Christ and, and, and don't feel an abundant, fulfilling life, you can experience an abundant, fulfilling life right here on this earth. If you accept Him as Lord and Savior, He will give you a grant, you a privilege. It's called the Holy Spirit. Now that's really how we know, right? What is our assurance of all these things. How do we know that these things are true? How do, we, how do we know that heaven exists and that we will have a new heavenly body with no sin? I mean, what is our assurance of these things that aren't seen? How can we give an account to these things that are tough to those that don't know Christ, that live in the temporal world? How can we talk about eternal things and have an assurance of that? Well, it's in verse 5. Verse 5 says... And tells us how we can be certain of eternity. How we can have a certainty of eternity is because He, God, has given us the Spirit as a deposit, guaranteeing what is to come. See, the Holy Spirit that dwells within every believer is this guarantee stamp. And I, I like to use this analogy. You probably heard me do it before. But when you go to some places, they'll stamp an invisible stamp on you, and you can't see it. But when you put it under the light, what do you get to see? You get to see your stamp. And that's the way I like to see the Holy Spirit is that he gives us this guarantee stamp that's invisible that's within all believers. And it's a deposit. It's a down payment. It's a guarantee thing. You'll never lose it. You'll never lose it. If you put your faith in Christ, you will never lose that guarantee stamp of the Holy Spirit within your life. It'll always be there. And so that when you go to heaven you will shine and that stamp will glow. The Holy Spirit will glow within you because God will not see your sin, but he'll see it paid for in full. That stamp says, your sins are paid in full. Your ticket to heaven is in and you get your glorified body when Christ comes back. Ephesians chapter 1 talks about this guarantee stamp. In verse 13 and 14 it says, having believed, you were marked in him with a seal the promised Holy Spirit, who is a deposit guaranteeing our inheritance. And even in 2 Corinthians, uh, on chapter 1, verse 22, he said, He appointed us, God appointed us, and set His seal of ownership on us and put His Spirit, the Holy Spirit, in our hearts as a deposit guaranteeing what is to come. That is our certainty of eternity. The Spirit inside us confirms we are children of God. When we hear something contradictory to the truth, the Spirit will tell us. When we sin, the Spirit will convict us. When someone tells us there are numerous ways to heaven, we cry out, no, there's only one way, and that's through Jesus. The babe in the manger who became a man who became king, and who became Lord. 
going to conclude with a, a poem from Charles Wesley. And he wrote this just before he went to be with the Lord. He said, In age and feebleness extreme, who shall a sinful worm redeem? Jesus, my only hope, thou art, strength of my failing flesh and heart. Oh, could I catch a simple smile from thee and drop into eternity. Lord God, thank you for eternity. Thank you for the certainty of eternity that you have stamped us with the Holy Spirit that tells us, that, that confirms things we cannot see, that gives us faith, and gives us hope to lie on the future, to lie in heaven and not on ourselves. Lord, thank you for creating us with a purpose that you create us by you and for you and you created us for eternity and that we should set our mind not on things in this world but set our mind on things above. And Lord, I pray that this Christmas season we, we would do that. We would set our mind on things above that when we are with one another we would not dwell on things that are temporal but we would dwell on on the daily encouragement of the eternal of heaven. And Lord, when we are with those that don't know you, that we would point them to heaven. We would point them to know the Savior, the baby in the manger that became the King and the Lord that we know today, that died a suffering death, but conquered sin and death when he rose again. And Lord, thank you for what you did on the cross and raising again and giving us a new resurrected body, a body without sin, one that can glorify you all the time. And as we groan and as we long for that, Lord, let us continue to long for heaven and let that be our focus. I pray that we can be a body of encouragement and continue to encourage one another daily with heaven. Encourage one another daily with the grace, the sovereign grace that you've poured upon us. Lord, thank you for this time. May you bless it. May you use it to richly change our lives. May you use it to be salt and light in, in Windsor. May you use it in Windsor High School, in the coffee shops, in the grocery stores. May you use it throughout our lives to be a daily encouragement as we walk, as we struggle, knowing that our outward man is decaying, yet the inward is being renewed day by day. Lord, pray that we remember that when we go through trials and afflictions, that we are to look for our eternal glory, which is to come, that far outweighs the light and momentary afflictions we are facing in this time. I thank you for your word, which does not come back void, which is ever penetrating, and it cuts both bone and flesh, and it cuts both soul and spirit. I thank you, Lord, for this time. In your name, amen.